Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Poem Peeps. Monty and I are so excited today to bring you our third episode in our COPD series that we're doing in collaboration with the ATS Clinical Problems Assembly. Hey first, yeah, and everyone, as you remember, we had Wasim Labaki and Bob Wyson, and we went through COPD classification and practical management strategies, which was followed up by Brad Drummond and Allison Lambert, where we then talked about COPD exacerbations. And you probably remember Brad's signature description of a COPD exacerbation as a lung stroke from that episode. Uh, but since our last episode, Firf and I have been anxiously awaiting this episode, and we think we'll be able to learn a lot from our expert guest today. Yeah, I totally agree. We'll be talking about severe COPD and some advanced management, and then some surgical and bronchoscopic uh, options for treating patients who have advanced COPD. And I'm really looking forward to another great discussion. Uh, so why don't we start and meet our guests? Great. Thanks, Firf. Um, first up, we have Dr. Jessica Bond. Jessica is an Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, where she is also the Program Director for the Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Fellowship. So all those applicants applying this year, um, I know you're going to look forward to meeting Jessica in the fall. Uh, Jessica's research and clinical interests focus on lung disease progression in COPD, and she manages patients with difficult to treat and severe COPD and evaluates patients for lung volume reduction surgery. Jessica is also the outgoing chair of the ATS Clinical Problems Assembly Programming Committee. Welcome to Plum Peeps today, Jessica. Thanks, Christine and Dave, for having me on the program. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, happy to have you. Now, next, we have uh, Dr. Michael Lester. Michael is an assistant professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. His interests span both pulmonary and critical care, and he works both in the ICU and on the general pulmonary team and consult service, as well as in the outpatient. He specializes in patients with advanced COPD and evaluation of, of patients for bronchoscopic therapies for their advanced COPD. He's a member of the ATS Clinical Problems Assembly and is just returning from ATS like all of us. We're very excited to have you here on the show today, Mike. Yeah. Hey, guys. Thanks for inviting me. Super excited to be here and especially to be here with my two much more qualified <laughs> co-participants and looking forward to learning as we uh, talk together today. Thanks so much for joining us today, though, Michael. And wrapping up our guest today is Dr. Niru Pucha. Niru is an associate professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and is an integral member and mentor in our obstructive lung disease group. Her research and clinical interests focus on the role of comorbidities on clinical outcomes in those individuals with COPD. And she also manages patients with difficult to treat and severe COPD and evaluates patients for lung volume reduction surgery. Congratulations to Niru, who is also the chair-elect of ATS, Clinical Problems Assembly Programming Committee. Great to have you on the show today, Niru. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here and also have big shoes to fill with Jessica, having represented COPD so well in clinical problems programming. Wonderful. Yeah, I think in our first episode, we gave Bob Weiss got all the controversial questions. So maybe we're going to um, target Jessica today, but excited nonetheless for all three of you to be with us today. And just a disclaimer, as a reminder, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. And the views we express today do not reflect the opinions or policies of our respective employers. And details of the case may have changed to remain HIPAA compliant. So before we get started with our expert guest and get to hear from them, Firf and I want to provide you with a common patient scenario to really just help frame the discussion that we're going to have today. So we have a 65-year-old man with a history of non-insulin-dependent diabetes, depression, and a prior history of tobacco use, uh, which he reported a 40-pack-year history, who quit in 2021. 
He does have a history of COPD with a post-bronchodilator FEV1 to FEC ratio of 0.45 with an FEV1% predicted of 35%. His total lung capacity was 115% consistent with hyperinflation and his residual volume was 120% consistent with air trapping and his DLCO was 40% predicted consistent with a severe gas transfer defect. He has been limiting his activity because he develops dyspnea within a few minutes of walking on level ground, and his COPD assessment or CAT score is 20. He's been hospitalized three times in this last year for COPD exacerbation and was discharged home last month on supplemental oxygen at two liters with activity. He was also discharged home on triple therapy, including uh, LAMA, LABA, as well as ICS and is now being seen as a new patient in clinic as he just moved to the area to live with his daughter. And I know this may be a common patient scenario for Jessica, Michael, and Yuru today. In our first episode, we learned an approach to classify COPD severity using the GOLD or Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease criteria. And based on this information, Jessica, that you're hearing, how would you assess um, our patient's COPD severity? Sure. So the patient, just looking at FEV1 alone, the patient has an FEV1% of 35% predicted. So that would classify him as grade three airflow obstruction, which would be an FEV1 between 30 and 49% predicted. And because he's less than 50%, he would be considered to have severe airflow obstruction. However, I think we all know that FEV1 does not tell the whole story with our COPD patients. So we may have two patients that come into our office with very similar FEV1% predicted values that have very different symptom burdens. So one may be able to walk up steps and get a little short of breath, and the other one can't get dressed in the morning without stopping. So I think it's much more useful to think in terms of the ABCD classification tool that you discussed your last COPD episode. So he has an MMRC score of three because he's saying that he's desperate when he walks a few minutes on a level surface, his CAT score is 20. So that would put him in the category of having a high symptom burden. And then he also reports three hospitalizations within the past year for exacerbations, which makes him high risk. So I had to classify him as a gold D. Thanks so much, Jessica. And we'll make sure that we put the categorization up for you um, on our website again so that you can refer to it in case you need a quick refresher. But as a follow-up question, Jessica, what other information would you typically want to know about this patient on meeting him for the first time? And are there any other diagnostics that you would consider trying to get in the near future? So yeah, so looking at his therapy, he's on triple therapy, so he's on the ics Lama. So he appears at least optimized on his pharmacologic therapy. I would want to know if he's tried pulmonary rehab. I think the first thing I would probably do in the office is assess his inhaler techniques. So even though we have him optimized on therapy, he may not be using his inhalers correctly. He may have a dry powdered inhaler and he's not able to generate enough inspiratory flow to get it into his lungs, which we see commonly in our severely obstructed patients. That would be my first step. Then I'd want to look to see if he had a CT scan. If he hasn't had a CT scan, I'd want to get that to assess for the severity of his emphysema as well as the distribution because something like lung volume reduction may be a potential option to target his dyspnea. He was just discharged in the hospital on supplemental oxygen um, with activities that at least suggest that during his hospitalization, he had some exercise hypoxemia. So I'd want to get a resting pulse ox on him and then also do a six-minute walk test to see if he still needed oxygen. And then finally, he's reporting a lot of exacerbations in the past um, year. So I would want to get an arterial blood gas to see if he's hypercapnic because I know that if he's having recurrent severe exacerbations, if he has hypercapnia and I put him on something like non-invasive positive 
suppressor ventilation that may have a positive impact on its exacerbations. That's great. That is like there are three pearls there already that I just really love. Like the FEV one, not telling the story, thinking about hypercapnia, and then we've talked a lot about inhaler technique, but we haven't talked so much yet in these episodes about the inhaler formulations. So I love that thinking about these advanced patients and is dry powder really the best for them? So this is definitely a patient phenotype that's different than our first two episodes, and, and he's certainly concerning with all the pulmonary manifestations we know already. You know, I know some of your research interests include thinking about comorbidities and outcomes in COPD. And I feel like a patient almost never gets to this level without having some other health issues going on. So can you talk to us why it's so important to consider the comorbidities and if there are any specific concerns for this patient today? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I think the key here is uh, that is what you already mentioned, which is we have a patient population that by and large is older, you know, on average 60s, 70s. They have largely been former or current smokers, and they're at risk for a lot of other diseases by virtue of, of their age group, as well as the other their exposures. So it's really important to think about comorbid chronic diseases. And there's a good bit of literature to show that patients with COPD on average have two to three other major comorbid chronic diseases, and that the burden of those diseases is associated with poor outcomes. And then there's a lot of literature about specific comorbidities. Big ones that come to mind on, in broad strokes are you know, heart disease, whether that's coronary artery disease or congestive heart failure. And then there's also a good bit of literature on depression and other behavioral health problems. And then diabetes being pretty common, there's, there's a good bit of literature there. And then I would also add that um, sleep apnea is an important you know, comorbidity that we think about in COPD. And then finally, which, you know, already already came up from a standpoint of imaging, uh, we always have to think about concomitant lung cancer in our patient population. So I think there's, for all of those comorbidities, I would say there's a decent amount of literature that pretty well establishes a higher risk for adverse outcomes, exacerbations, hospitalizations, and symptom outcomes for patients who have concomitant depression or you know, sleep apnea, coronary disease, et cetera. So very important to think about those. And so for this specific patient, I think the things that come to mind, you know, he is reported to have a history of depression. You know, we definitely want to think about concomitant depression and how that impacts his symptoms and the way that his disease manifests. Diabetes also, particularly from in the acute presentation, when somebody gets treated with corticosteroids, um, there are a lot of, of, of considerations there from a standpoint of um, existing diabetes and the control of that. And I think regardless of any report of a history of heart disease, people who have dyspnea with exertion worsening in a short period of time, we always want to think about ischemia and heart disease. So I think that all of those things are important to consider for this patient. You know, it's interesting because there's not a lot in gold, even in the 2022 update, that specifically states that we need to be screening for these problems. And by and large, you know, gold would tell us, which makes sense that all of these diseases need to be treated as they would be otherwise. So that's common sense. But I think it's also important as the, the first line in a lot of these patients who see the, uh, you know, see patients who have COPD who are severe, all, sometimes more often than their primary care doctors, that we need to sort of supplement that important care that they're getting um, from a standpoint of screening for, for diseases like depression, anxiety, um, and coronary disease. 
That's great. We've kind of gone through some of the gold things and how it didn't mention comorbidities. And I love the screening. Thought. Just out of curiosity, are there any screening things that you do routinely for those that are maybe our listeners should think about? Like, is there a depression scale you use? Do you send all of them for a sleep study or is it after an exacerbation? Any pearls that some people could take away? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that a lot of this isn't necessarily supported by gold. But I think a lot of us who see COPD patients regularly, some set of tools that we try to uh, use systematically. And I know in our center, we have a, a newly formed precision medicine center where we're trying to make this a little bit more systematic. And so we generally try to screen for depression and anxiety in our center. That's the GAD uh, tool, as well as the PHQ for both of those diseases. And then as far as sleep apnea, you know, I think that there's a number of screening, p- potential screening tools that could be used. For example, a stop bang questionnaire um, slash tool. So I think it's nice to think about um, incorporating some of those screening tools into the assessments systematically for patients who are being seen for COPD. And I think we all are probably a lot better at thinking about lung cancer screening. And so that building that into, you know, the routine assessment of patients we see for COPD, I think are, those are really important considerations, particularly for this patient. Yeah, thanks so much. And, and Jessica, Michael, I know you both are also seeing sort of advanced COPD patients. Uh, do you have any anything to add or certain specific things that your center likes to do that we can sort of learn from? I order a lot of DEXA scans in my patients. So my one of my research interests is osteoporosis and COPD. And we know that COPD and specifically emphysema is a risk factor regardless of all other risk factors in these patients. So if I were seeing this patient in my office, he's 65 years old, so he's kind of reaching the age anywhere where he should be having a baseline DEXA scan, I would send him for um, screening with a DEXA scan for osteoporosis. I think that we tend to overlook the importance of screening for osteoporosis in our male patients, both with COPD and without. Yeah, I, I would agree with all of that. It was a really nice synopsis of the things we usually think about. Anxiety is such a huge, uh, there's a huge burden of anxiety in these patients with chronic breathlessness, and it gets into a, a really vicious spiral for a lot of them. And so I think screening for uh, those things is critical. I, I wouldn't necessarily dig as deep on this in somebody with an RV of 120, but just because of where I think we're going with the rest of this episode, the other thing I'll say is when, when people are hyperinflated, we end up really paying a lot of attention to history of lung cancer, any sort of radiation in the chest, history of pneumothorax. Have you had a prior thoracostomy? Have you had, you know, wedge resection, those type of things, because anything that's going to leave you with pleurodesis in a focal area that's ipsilateral to where we're thinking about placing a valve is a big deal. And is going to increase your risk of poor response or pneumothorax afterward, uh, because you're going to, if you have tethers, you're going to worsen that sheer stress when you get collapsed. Those are the only other things that I, I really, I think, dig into a lot and pay a lot of attention to with these patients. Thank you all so much. You know, and I think Furf and I definitely have made it to point to really stress for assessing for comorbidities, as Niru and Jessica mentioned. And Michael, thank you for bringing that up. Fellows or residents seeing patients in clinic may not necessarily think to look in that detail or depth prior kind of pulmonary surgeries or history. So I think that was a great pearl to take from that. And Michael, I do want to go to you though next. I know we've talked a lot so far, um, but I want just listeners to kind of remember our patient and I want to ask if you can frame our patient for us so far for the episode. Yeah, so we're talking about a 65-year-old gentleman who has a history of severe COPD as classified by his FEV1 and airflow obstruction, 
who also is on triple therapy and requires supplemental oxygen, seems to fall into the uh, frequent exacerbator uh, subcategory based on his history. And it's coming to us, in fact, after a hospitalization for a significant COPD exacerbation in the setting of several important comorbidities that we just covered. Thanks so much. I, you know, I know that we've talked about optimizing treatment for a patient. I think that's a great synopsis to move forward with. And as you alluded to, I'm really excited to talk about some of these advanced therapies, but you know, we should always go through our checklist of things we can do before thinking about uh, invasive therapies. So Mike, in your experience, are there any other pharmacologic or non-pharmacologic treatments we should be thinking about for this patient before we dive into LVRS or bronchoscopic therapy? Absolutely. I really liked Jessica's point at the top about uh, thinking about the delivery mechanism for all of your inhalers. And, and we do sometimes shift things around to try to improve that delivery and sometimes even move toward, you know, all nebulized therapies in people who have very severe difficulty with delivery or, or very small airways focused disease um, to try to get a better MAT and, and uh, penetration and, and particle consistency. And I think that's a critical piece to always think about. Uh, exacerbation reduction is another big area, and the two kind of pillars of that right now are azithromycin, which we often use for uh, suppression. There are felt to be some immunomodulating anti-inflammatory pulmonary effects that may come along with that. And it, at least to my knowledge, I don't believe anyone's ever shown that 500 milligrams Monday, Wednesday, Friday versus 250 milligrams daily, uh, that there's any evidence for one versus the other. And I think both regimens are, are reasonable. Um, whenever we're considering that, we always, of course, want to think about the QTC because this is a QTC prolonging medication. The other big kind of pillar of exacerbation reduction is reflumolast, which is a PDE4 inhibitor. Again, not a, not a bronchodilator, uh, but does uh, reduce the breakdown of cyclic AMP and reduce inflammation um, through that pathway. This one um, we also use a lot. It's best, you know, if you look at gold, really it's best for people with severe COPD by FEV1 who also have chronic bronchitis symptoms as opposed to azithromycin, which they use, I think, a little bit more generally in their guidelines. You know, the big side effects with reflumolast are mostly GI side effects. There's a lot of people who struggle to tolerate it with nausea, diarrhea, things of that nature. Some mood side effects can come along with it as well. These are always important things to um, counsel patients to look out for. Right now, there's no data that really suggests that reflumolast is clearly superior to azithromycin or vice versa. There is a big pragmatic study that's ongoing right now at a bunch of centers in the country, which is looking to answer this question called Reliance. I know for, for me, at least, I'm really interested to see what comes out of that. We kind of touched on some of these other things already, but obviously, you know, oxygen is important and especially resting hypoxemia is something we want to avoid. Good data for a mortality benefit, preventing resting hypoxemia in these patients and reducing right heart strain. Vaccinations, obviously your uh, pneumonia vaccinations including our new Prevnar that's finally getting out to the clinics. Flu, COVID, all very important. And then pulmonary rehab is, I think, enormous for these patients. There's good data that it reduces your chance of exacerbation, it improves your quality of life, and that people do better long-term when they've had high-quality pulmonary rehab. It's really difficult because there are metabolomic changes that come along with severe COPD like this for, for patients to sometimes rebuild muscle mass. And once they get deconditioned, it can be an uphill battle to get them back into a good place. So I'm 
pretty aggressive about trying to keep these patients in pulmonary rehab and, and functional and develop an exercise routine. Just for pulmonary rehab, sometimes when I think of it, or sometimes I know um, when I've been working with residents, fellows, they always kind of ask, you know, what is the optimal time to send someone to pulmonary rehab? Or, you know, a patient may go, you know, once, but don't necessarily have follow-up. But just for for the three guests, do you have any um, recommendations or when in the timing of someone's course you would recommend pulmonary rehab? I mean, I think for this patient, ideally, it should have been prescribed when he left the hospital. There, you know, there are recommendations that within, I think, four weeks, getting them into a program now, recommendations versus what actually happens in the logistics of that, it's the uptake is very, very low. I think the sooner the better. Great. Thank you so much, Jessica. And I'm going to go back to our patient. So we're seeing our patient back in clinic, and it's now been four months since his initial visit. So he's now 66 years old. He had a birthday since we last saw him. His diabetes and depression are being adequately treated. And he tells us today that he has not smoked any tobacco in over 12 months. He has been hospitalized, though, again, unfortunately, since we last saw him for another COPD exacerbation. And on this hospital admission, he did have a CT chest and showed severe emphysematous changes, predominantly in the upper lobes. Before coming to clinic, he did have repeat pulmonary function testing. His FEV1 is still low at 32% predicted. He still continues to have hyperinflation with a TLC of 118%, as well as air trapping with an RV of 150%. And his DLCO remains low at 35%, and not surprisingly, he is requiring oxygen at 2 liters with activity. He does feel like he's lost some weight, and his BMI is currently about 25. He remains on triple therapy, and given his last hospital admission on discharge, he was um, told to start taking daily azithromycin. He was recommended to start pulmonary rehab, Jessica, as you mentioned, pretty shortly afterwards, and he completed a six-week pulmonary rehab program. Six-minute walk tests today show that he can walk approximately 200 feet with two liters nasal cannula. But overall, he still feels pretty bad. He feels the quality of his life is impacted based on his symptoms, as well as his frequent hospitalizations. He's joined by his daughter today in clinic, and they're asking if there are any other options you would recommend for his severe COPD and for his symptoms. And I know Firf and I are excited to talk about the next topic um, and hear from you all. But Jessica, can you comment on the role of surgical lung volume reduction surgery and why or why this wouldn't be appropriate for our patient? Sure. So just to, to provide a general overview of what surgical lung volume reduction surgery is and, and why it helps. So we know with severe emphysema, there's a loss of pulmonary elasticity and elastic recoil of the lungs, and that this leads to air trapping and hyperinflation. So when I talk to my patients, I always use the analogy of a rubber band. Um, I tell them, you know, you take a deep breath in using your muscles of breathing and the rubber band stretches during then when you exhale, the rubber band snaps back and it forces the air out of your lungs. When they have emphysema, there's destruction of the lung tissue and the rubber band becomes floppy. So when you take a deep breath in, the rubber band stretches, but then the floppy rubber band bounces back more slowly and it takes longer for the air to be forced out. So when a patient has areas of hyperinflated emphysematous lung tissue, it's adjacent to healthier lung tissue that 
emphysematous lung can compress the healthy lung tissue so it's not fully participating in respiration and hyperinflation can also lead to diaphragm flattening and impaired function of the diaphragm. So with surgical lung volume reductions, what happens is the surgeon removes the hyperinflated emphysematous areas of the lung, allows the adjacent compressed healthier lung tissue that has greater elasticity to take up that space. And now because the elastic recoil of this lung tissue is increased, hyperinflation residual volume are reduced and respiratory symptoms are improved. And then also because hyperinflation is reduced, the diaphragm can take on its more native concave position and then function more efficiently. So I think in this patient, he, he's very borderline. So 150% is the cutoff for surgical lung volume reduction surgery. So he's right at that, that borderline of hyperinflation that would make him appropriate. I also think, and I'd love to hear from the other guests with his exacerbations, I'd have a little bit concerned if he's having frequent exacerbations that we're not going to impact that as much as we will his dyspnea. So I'd be a little bit hesitant to suggest lung volume reduction surgery right now in him. Yeah, I fully agree. Like you said, 150 is like the bare minimum. And that's, you know, trying to sort out how much, as we were talking about before, of each patient's presentation is related to kind of the macro mechanical changes that come along with stretching your diaphragms and being severely hyperinflated versus things like small airways disease, sputum production, chronic bronchitis type symptoms is super important. And I agree with Dr. Bond that this is somebody who actually, I, I'm not sure what the magnitude of benefit would be because I think there would be other issues that are not gonna be addressed by a procedure. This is great. I think it's so helpful and what the kind of stuff we wanted to get into, you know, I feel like we think we see advanced COPD patients and we think about it as a one disease or two diseases, you know, emphysema, the chronic bronchitis, but now we're getting into this advanced physiologic mechanism and it's really almost a different disease and we have to really identify these patients uh, who are going to benefit from it. I love that diaphragm shape thing. I'm definitely going to use that with patients as well. Uh, Nero, I would hope to go to you uh, next, you know, to expand upon this. So I know you see a lot of patients refer them for thoracic surgery uh, and Michael and Jessica were just telling us about what kind of things we're thinking about. So what sort of tests are you ordering preoperatively for this type of patient to figure out one, if they can benefit from this? And then two, are they safe to get this type of procedure? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think the testing is focused on making sure we have the right person who would benefit. And so I would go further to say it's not a couple of different diseases, but it's sort of this huge spectrum of many different, you know, um, phenotypes. And we're trying to really pick that small subgroup that could benefit from this type of treatment. And then also safety, as you said. So, you know, imaging is important because you do want to see, particularly with the surgical techniques, you want to see that there are, there is some heterogeneity that could benefit from the procedure. You know, what, what location would be targeted in, particularly also in the imaging, you, you want to make sure you don't have significant bronchiectasis or other structural lung abnormalities, large nodules that need continued following, et cetera. You know, I think that the PFTs are important. So to expand a little bit on the point that Michael made, you know, an RV of 150% is, is sort of the lower threshold of what you would start thinking about for, for someone who could benefit from this type of procedure. 
And I think you want to make sure that the lung function tests are done, but also done with the, the techniques that would appropriately identify someone's lung volume. So particularly in this patient population, if possible, it's good to do body plethysmography for the for the lung volumes to really get an accurate representation. What I found for both surgical and you know, bronchoscopic LVR is that if you compare head-to-head, people have gotten things like helium dilution compared to plethysmography, you're usually underestimating um, the RV if you're using other techniques. So definitely something to keep in mind for the technique for doing PFTs. You know, you want to understand the degree to which they're hypercapnic and hypoxemic with an ABG if possible and understand their six-minute walk distance, particularly after having completed rehab. And then I think you know, there's a whole slew of cardiac testing that would be important here. You want to make sure they don't have significant evidence of ischemia. So probably getting EKGs and and particularly for a surgical procedure, I think you're going even further to get an echo and getting a stress because this is a major surgery. There's, you know, a lot involved, there's long hospital stay and um, risks. So I think um, many of these patients need both, you know, an assessment of their pump um, as well as, you know, whether there's any inducible ischemia. And then importantly, you know, this is not a procedure for people who are active smokers. So you want to make sure the patients have been, you know, abstinent from smoking for at least four months. So that I think would be important. And then I also, other, in addition to thinking about the subtype of COPD and, you know, you don't want to really necessarily try this type of technique in somebody who's frequently exacerbating, somebody who's on high doses of, of chronic prednisone or steroids is, is probably not a good candidate for this. So I think in the the net trial, it was 20 milligrams or less prednisone chronically. And so that's what most people practice by is, is that sort of exclusion criterion. Amazing. I um, I always, when I'm teaching medicine with the residents and med students, I always say like there are the trials and then there's the physiology and they sometimes line up and when they do it, it's beautiful. So like that exclusion criteria being there and everything you all are saying lines up great. So I, I love that. I, I get, this is a follow-up question just for everybody. You have all mentioned the importance of imaging and trying to get a sense of the distribution of uh, emphysema and how they'll benefit are you just using standard CT scans and then yourselves and experienced radiologists? Are there any other imaging techniques you're looking to get a better sense? Or is this mostly to experience in, in reading these beforehand? Or how are you best assessing that? For our surgical patients, we do um, perfusion scans in everyone. Um, I find that it oftentimes just confirms what we're seeing on CT scan, but certainly when you have patients that you look at their CT scan and you're looking at the heterogeneity and you're kind of in that gray area, I find that the, the perfusion scan can be very helpful to either confirm that they're a good candidate or not. Yeah, totally agree. We do the same for virtually everybody for LVRS. And then we'll probably talk about it more with the bronchoscopic lung volume reduction, but there are Hounsfield unit cutoff uh, analyses and fissural analyses that we use m- more in the bronchoscopic patients really than the surgical patients uh, as well. Yeah, I think we have a more general sense of which patients now may be eligible and the necessary testing to consider. But one thing that we haven't talked too much yet about, any kind of contraindications or complications of the surgery itself. Michael, and I was wondering if you could highlight some of those for us today, mainly the contraindications that you think of regarding surgical lung volume reduction surgery. Yeah. So, you know, a a lot of the contraindications are things that we've already kind of touched on. Obviously, with LVRS in particular, most of the data is coming from NET and the NET trial did show us that you really need patients with a low exercise capacity who are 
fairly heterogeneous, um, as we've already mentioned, to get a good response. Um, so homogeneous disease, when we're thinking about LVRS, surgical lung volume reduction in particular, is generally a contraindication. Whenever we're removing some lung tissue, the anatomy matters. And so seeing exactly uh, where the perfusion is, making sure that these are accessible segments that we're going to remove and that we're not going to be sacrificing a lot of healthy lung is also very important and something that our surgeons pay a lot of attention to. That also, I think, ties into the diffusion capacity um, of these patients. And generally, the floor, at least at our center, is um, 20%. We don't like to do LVRS on people with diffusion capacities below 20%. Uh, I don't know if that's the same um, for you all. Um, and then the FEV1, we also want you to have a, a minimum FEV1. Um, we'll, we'll go down to about 15 um, to 20, somewhere in that range um, as kind of a minimum criteria. And then again, as, as we all talked about earlier at the top two, you, you really need to be hyperinflated to benefit from this type of procedure. So if you look at net, I believe the RV cutoff is actually 175. And once we get to like 175 or above, we're pretty comfortable that you're there. If you're in the 150 to 175 range, consider it under the right circumstances if everything else lines up and the anatomy is very favorable. But um, those, are, those are kind of the big things that we kind of immediately think of. And then as I also mentioned before, you also have to think about prior surgeries, right? And people who have bypass grafts, things like that, those are complicating factors for the surgeons that they do have to take into account, be cautious um, on choosing who to operate on when they're looking at performing a procedure like this. Thanks so much for that, Michael. And I'm wondering if you or Jessica or Niru can discuss the implications of homogeneous versus heterogeneous findings on CT for our listeners. I know that we may read that and see that in some of the trials, and I think that may be a helpful point to go over for all of our listeners today. The key here is that, you know, homogeneous emphysema, you would sort of see kind of throughout the lungs, and particularly with the naked eye, you're not able to sort of ascertain that one lobe or one part of the lung looks worse than another, that it sort of kind of all looks uniformly affected. Whereas heterogeneous emphysema, you do see some predominance, whether that's upper lobe, which is sort of the classic picture we think of as as a person who would be um, benefited by some of these lung volume reduction techniques, but also sometimes the lower lobes being being more involved and with more preserved architecture in the ipsilateral side of the lung with the lower lobe or upper lobe. Great. Thank you so much for for walking through that with us, Niru. Um, Michael, a follow-up question for you. Thank you for talking about, you know, some of the contraindications, but what are some of the major complications that listeners should be aware about with lung volume reduction surgery? Yeah, you know, a big one is air leak and need for a long-term chest tube. It's not uncommon for people to have to go home with a Heimlich valve and to have significant subcutaneous emphysema and things of that nature, which can be fairly uncomfortable. I always get super uncomfortable when it happens, and the surgeons always remind me that, like, this is very common and it doesn't seem to phase them very much. But, yeah, I mean, that's a big one. It's fairly common for people to have a prolonged air leak after a procedure like this, even even if the surgery is technically performed, you know, at a very high level. Certainly see it a lot. Obviously, uh, you know, postoperative infections are, are always going to be a problem in people with advanced pulmonary disease. And, and we do see pneumonia afterward, surgical site. 
protections, etc. When we get down to people with really low FPV1s, sometimes extubation can be a challenge. That's that's usually not the case. Actually, I think that's one of the, in my personal opinion, I'd be curious if our other guests feel the same way. I think that's actually one of the things that's sometimes overblown in sort of common discussions of COPD patients. Most people, even with very low FPV1s, are, are able to liberate from the ventilator in the absence of significant complicating factors. And then obviously there's a recovery time associated with this procedure and there's risk factors for pulmonary embolus and uh, things like that while you're not really able to ambulate as you normally would and, and function normally. There's anytime you're doing a VATS, there's a risk of sort of post VATS chronic pain at the surgical site. And we do occasionally see that. It can be pretty tough for certain patients, but again, a fairly uncommon complication, I think, overall in this group. Awesome. This has been a great discussion so far of, you know, surgical LVRS. Uh, and it sounds like we have to have a thoughtful discussion with ourselves if they're going to benefit and, and with the patient about the risks and benefits, but that could be a great option for the select population. We've referred to it already a bunch. So bronchoscopic lung volume reduction surgery is certainly another option. So Mike, can you just walk us through what this is, where, when, and how we're considering it on the spectrum of surgical? Uh, safer, or is there a larger swath of patients we're using it as? Just a general overview would be great. Yeah, perfect. So yeah, this is basically trying to achieve the same end goal as surgical lung volume reduction that, that um, Jessica already told us about. And we're essentially trying to reduce the strain on the diaphragm um, and allow those breathing muscles to reset into their normal position and get their mechanical advantage back. There's some redistribution of airflow, but that's probably the lesser effect, honestly, um, in getting these patients symptomatic relief. Essentially, what we do is we put the patients to sleep for a bronchoscopy, go down their airway with a bronchoscope like we normally would, and then we go to a target lobe. One of the differences between LVRS and BLVR is that with lung volume reduction surgery, you can do a non-anatomic resection, right? You can resect specific areas and leave other parts intact. With BLVR, you have to select a lobe to be reduced because uh, the way that we actually implant the valves is facing out in each of the major airways that goes to that lobe so that there's no airflow. And this is one of the big limiting aspects of this procedure, actually. Some people do have collateral airflow channels that form, especially with advanced COPD, and then they get flow through the ipsilateral lobe that you can't really negate. And in those patients, you can put the valves in one, one lobe all day and they're not going to collapse. They're, they're going to continue to have inflation and effectively you'll have no effect. But anyway, in patients who have intact good fissural integrity, you put those valves in all the uh, airways in a lobe, they're facing out, the patient takes a breath in and the valves shut. They uh, then exhale and the valves fish mouth open and let the air come out. And over time you get collapse of that target lobe. And essentially you're, you're shooting to get complete collapse to eliminate the volume. That's why we pay a lot of attention to Hounsfield unit scores and things of that nature, because we obviously want to select the parts of the lung that are doing the least for you, that have the least healthy viable tissue and are the most hyperinflated. So we pay attention to how much air is in each lobe and also what the destruction score is by Hounsfield units. And then we look at the fissural integrity to collect. The valves are removable. Um, so if you don't have a good effect or there's a complication, there's an issue that arises, we can go right back in and 
snaps the valves out in most cases and get rid of them and you haven't lost any lung tissue, which is a big difference between obviously the surgery where we're actually physically removing that lung tissue. That was great. Thank you so much, Michael. Neeru, does your approach change for endobronchial valve patient selection based off of any diagnostic criteria? So I guess if you could walk us through maybe some of the diagnostics again and, you know, definitely some medical history. Yeah. So this is similar to surgical and volume reduction in that, you know, you're trying to find the right subset of people who will benefit, but also make sure you're looking at sort of the safety of a procedure. That being said, it's not as involved of a procedure. It's not you know, as involved as a surgical lung volume reduction, but there's still some safety kind of issues to think through. So we're looking largely at the same patient population where we're looking for, for patients who have significant emphysema that have relatively intact DLCO in the sense that you want that to be over 20%. You want to see see the emphysema on CT, and though it's not completely necessary for that to be heterogeneous by naked eye. All of the CT scans, for the for the most part, people do go through more involved procedures to quantify emphysema and sort of the location of emphysema structurally on lungs through various techniques. The most common one is sort of like a proprietary procedure put out by one of the companies where that basically produces a cartoon that tells you like, okay, this part of the lung has this much emphysema, this part of the lung has this much emphysema. And importantly, we think that the fissures are intact for, for, for these parts of the lungs um, that separate upper lobe, lower lobe, et cetera. Important because of this issue that Michael mentioned, which was sort of the collateral ventilation and will this procedure actually be successful? So imaging is really critical for this patient population, but physiologically it's the same largely the same group you're looking for um, in surgical lung volume reduction. You want to find patients who have airflow obstruction. You want They need to have pretty significant um, air trapping. And so, you know, the larger trial that led to FDA approval of this used an RV of 175% as a cutoff, which I think most of us probably do use clinically as well. And again, I would say that should be done, if at all possible, um, using plethysmography to get a better and more accurate estimate. You know, other things to think through for the workup, we want to find patients who've gone through pulmonary rehab, if at all possible, and then assess what their six-minute walk distance is after rehab. Because again, that's a, a, a treatment that has a substantial evidence base, and we don't want to skip those steps. That's an important step for every patient with COPD who's like being thought about for these advanced procedures that should come first. And then we want to look for uh, look at ABG um, on room air, if at all possible. But most importantly, looking at the hypercapnia um, in the larger trials, patients with a PCO2 over 50 were excluded. And so most people, you know, try not to treat patients with significant hypercapnia. And then, you know, most centers will try, try to find this patient population and sort of identify the right lobes, but many will ultimately get a perfusion scan to sort of better understand, you know, are we picking the right lobe? Are we treating the right place? And then from a safety standpoint, we, you know, we want to make sure patients don't have significant HEFREF. So we want to see an EF that's over 45% on echo. And then, you know, if there's a concern for pulmonary hypertension, you know, we have sent several of our patients to get right heart caths to sort of better quantify and understand whether that exists because you don't, I mean, I think importantly, if you have a patient who has significant exercise intolerance and you're trying to treat them with this this procedure, which has risks, 
you want to make sure you have a patient population that isn't dyspneic because they have significant severe underlying pulmonary hypertension. And I think it at the very least helps you sort of better understand that. Um, so those are the bigger things I think about and similar to um, surgical, you know, they need to be um, abstinent from smoking for four more months and similar uh, requirement for the chronic use of steroids, 20 milligrams or less. Nira, yeah, I have a quick follow-up question for you. So for our patients, people who are listening who are referring patients, you know, general pulmonologists, fellows, residents, should their patient have gone through pulmonary rehab first? I know that we don't want to skip it and maybe they can go through that and, and benefit and not need this therapy, but should they start the workup first or is that a prerequisite for even being considered that they've gone through a pulmonary rehab program? Yeah. So, I mean, strictly speaking, I think it should come first, but I think as these things go in the real world, there are some people who just don't have access to rehab. There are some people who have a long waiting list for rehab, so there can be barriers. So I think you can consider those on a case-by-case basis. But largely, I mean, I think if, you, if you're if you speaking about a patient who's too well for, for pulmonary rehab, then they're too well for this procedure, in, in my opinion. And so I think the, the major trial that led Liberate, that led to, you know, that was came right before the FDA approval, um, required, at least, I believe it was at least eight sessions of pulmonary rehab, um, if not completion. And that's kind of what we try to try to stick to. But there are cases where somebody may not have access. And so then you can consider that individually. Oh, great. That's a great rule of thumb to have. Thank you. Uh, Jessica, we've talked about a bunch of things about identifying the right patients. And, you know, Michael talked to us about fissures and making sure that we had a, a good lobe that we were going after anatomically. We just heard about some of the other contraindications. Any other important exclusion criteria we should be aware of for patients that we don't think will benefit well from this therapy? Yeah, I first want to echo what Nero said about a low ejection fraction and pulmonary hypertension and just making sure that the patient is dyspneic because of their underlying lung disease and not something else. So I have a very low threshold for ordering a cardiopulmonary exercise test in these patients. We don't order them in everyone, but if I have a suspicion that there's a significant cardiac component, whether it be ischemia or arrhythmia or, you know, anything that could potentially be causing their symptoms, I'm going to do further cardiac testing. Um, I think it's ischemia. We'll get a stress test, but if I'm not quite sure, we will get a, a cardiopulmonary exercise test to make sure that it's not a significant cardiac component to their dyspnea because those are patients that if we put valves in, we're really not going to solve the problem because there, there's a lot of other things going on that are contributing to their symptoms. Um, as Mike said before, any patient who has had a procedure in their chest already, whether they've had lung blood reduction or lobectomy or a surgeon was in their chest for any reason because there's a concern that there may be adhesions in the pleural space and that when you reduce the lung volume of the one lobe, the compressed lung tissue and the healthier lobe's not going to be able to re-expand to fill up that space. Um, large bullae, if it's more than 30% of either lung. Of course, these, these valves are made of nickel and titanium, so if someone has an allergy to those materials, um, I would be worried about that as well. That's great. And, and then I guess the most important question, uh, this is really, I want to open up for all three of you is, you know, what do you tell your patients to expect if it works? And, and what experiences have you guys had? Have you had patients who've really, really benefited from this when everything goes well? How do patients feel afterwards? 
Yeah, so I, I tell my patients that if, if this works, um, you should expect to see improvements in your lung function. You're going to have better exercise tolerance. Your shortness of breath should be improved. You should have improved quality of life. I tell them, you know, you're going to be less short of breath. You're going to be able to do more. I always spend a lot of time talking about pneumothorax because we know that that is a significant um, complication. So in Liberate, it was close to 27% of the participants had a pneumothorax. I think in centers that are highly selective of their patient population and they're achieving greater low bar, complete low bar collapse compared to the trial, they're actually seeing numbers that are higher than 27%. But I tell my patients, you know, we, we know about this risk. That's why we keep you in the hospital for four days after the procedure. We put a sign on your door that says you're at risk for pneumothorax. We have a chest tube sitting at your bedside to put that, put it in if we need to. And that in the end, even if you do have a pneumothorax, the outcomes for patients that have pneumothoraces versus those that don't um, are very similar. Um, I also tell them that if we were doing surgery, you'd be guaranteed to have a chest tube in both sides of your chest. Um, so this, you know, taking a 27, 30% risk of pneumothorax, it's a pretty good gamble, I think. Great. I think we've had such an incredible overview so far. And I think for our specific patient, it seems like we may have some pause recommending him for surgical as well as um, bronchoscopic lung volume reduction surgery. I think for two reasons, we were concerned about the frequent exacerbations he was having, as well as the his RV was kind of right at the borderline. Yeah, Mike, go ahead. I, I wanted to ask a question if it's okay. You know, I'm sitting here with Jessica and Nero, who are experts in this, and the, the Liberate criteria that we just went through are certainly, I think, kind of the baseline criteria that everybody uses, and it makes perfect sense that that's the case. I'm just wondering if you guys in your centers ever flex on some of these, and if there are some that you're more willing to flex on than others. And I'll start by outing myself, which is saying, so for example, sometimes we'll treat people with PCO2s in like the low to mid fifties, things of that nature. Sometimes if we have one value that's like just barely out of range and everything else is kind of a green light and looks good, we'll, we'll try to move forward. I, I'm just curious if that's us being a little too aggressive or if you guys have similar approach. And we, we definitely, if we have someone who is severely hyperinflated, so we've had patients that their RVs are 315% of predicted. If we look at their CT and it's not quite as heterogeneous as we'd like to see, but they're super hyperinflated, we will potentially consider putting valves in them because we, we feel they'll probably still have some benefit because of the extreme hyperinflation. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I think there's always some criterion that you might be willing to to flex on on the, an individual basis if you think through the physiology and you, you sort of convince yourself like, is this PCO2 of 53 really driving their dyspnea or is it like this massive hyperinflation? And so I think, yeah. Thanks so much for that question, Michael. And I think that was great to get discussion from you, Jessica Niru, um, about that. And I wish we had more time to talk because I feel like there's so many unanswered questions that we have, you know, specifically one, we haven't even raised the question of lung transplant evaluation and where that fits into the timeline when you're considering uh, surgical or endoscopic lung volume reduction surgery procedures. 
Um, but hopefully we'll be having a separate episode on lung transplant in the near future and we'll be able to address this. But our last question today for all of our guests is, I know that this is a rapidly evolving field and I'm interested to hear if there are any new treatments for advanced COPD being explored now or coming down the pipeline that you're excited about? I know I'm personally excited about bronchial rheoplasty for chronic bronchitis. So for residents and listeners that aren't familiar with this technique, it's non-thermal pulse electrical fields that are delivered to the airway mucosa. And when you do that, it reduces the mucus producing cells. So this is currently in trials right now, but I think, you know, anecdotally, we've seen some good responses. And I think that with chronic bronchitis, the sputum production is so troublesome to our patients, and it's just really hard to treat these patients that if this ends up being an effective therapy that gets approved clinically, I think it's going to be really exciting. And I'd add, though it's not a new, necessarily new treatment, I think wider availability and more more studies about telehealth rehab, um, particularly, you know, innovating. Uh, one of the silver linings of COVID is innovation with with sort of telehealth, and so I'm I'm looking forward to seeing more in that in that area. I guess everybody's wondering if I'm going to add anything. No, uh, rheoplasty is um, is the thing that I'm hung up on. I, I wish it was. There's so many people I wish I could treat with it, and just to see if it works based on the phase two trial, which was really positive, but in a very, very, very highly selected subgroup of patients. But I'm I'm very excited to see if once it's approved, which hopefully it will be um, after this pivotal trial is done, what it's like in the real world with a with a wider swath of patients. Well, this has been an excellent way to sort of wrap up our third episode uh, on COPD. Thank you all so much, Jessica, Michael, and Nero. Uh, we like to wrap up each episode just with one key takeaway point. Uh, Nero, I know you have to go. So if you could tell us one takeaway point, that would be great. Yeah. So I, I my takeaway point is that COPD is a very heterogeneous disease. Not, not only do people have heterogeneous emphysema, but the disease itself and its manifestations. And so the key to better treating our patient population is to identify some of the factors, whether that's comorbidities or other physiologic factors that kind of drive the disease the most to better treat them. Great. Thank you so much. Jessica, anything our listeners should take away? So I would say that if you have a patient who's optimized on their inhalers, they've gone to pulmonary rehab, to think about lung volume reduction as a potential option to target their destiny. I think sometimes we just don't think about it. So I think it's important to consider this. Awesome. Michael? There's good data now from the European groups, uh, Slebos and Kluster and, and the people at Drungen who do amazing work like this, that people who were referred to them for bronchoscopic lung volume reduction consideration, whether they got implanted or not, the whole group had a survival of over seven years. And I think that's a really critical takeaway point for everybody listening, that just because somebody has severe COPD does not mean that they don't have meaningful quality lifespan left. And I think we are often biased to underestimate that. And I, I just want to emphasize that to the group. Great, Mike. Thanks. That's, a, I think, a great patient-centered takeaway point. Mine's going to be another patient-centered point that you guys pointed out, which I love, is that you know inhalers in these advanced patients may not be as effective if they can't get the particles down. So thinking about if you know, they're on the right inhaler formulation or if they need to be switched to an all-nebulizer regimen or something like that. Monty, what about you? Yeah, definitely agree. I know you brought up in our first COPD episode for if we want to do a kind of a live home peeps recording of using inhalers properly. So hopefully we can make that come to light. And I think my teaching point today um, was probably one of the first things Jessica mentioned when she said to really think about bone health in patients with COPD. I think something that's often overlooked was my takeaway from 
from today. And we have one final question um, before we end. I know we've had a great hour of discussion, um, but Jessica, with you being here today and being the outgoing chair of the Clinical Problems Assembly for the Programming Committee, I wanted to know if you could just comment um, a little bit on, on your role in the assembly and many people are coming back really energized and engaged from ATS 2022, but what are some opportunities you think listeners can try to engage in before ATS 2023? Yeah, so my role is I'm the outgoing program committee chair. So I had the opportunity to help plan the conference, which was fantastic and got to read all the abstracts that came in and the symposia proposals. I would encourage all the listeners to get involved with clinical problems. There are a ton of opportunities. We have a very active early career um, group that does networking and mentorship. They do the mentorship mentee program. They do stuff with social media. Um, We also have a very active web committee that a lot of our early career faculty are part of and do things again with social media and they do podcasts. I would just really encourage you, there are a lot of opportunities to reach out to Brad Drummond is actually the the new chair of Clinical Problems Assembly. Reach out to him or reach out to any of the chairs or co-chairs of any of the committees that you're interested in and ask to get involved. We're always looking for people to to come join us. And COPD, Clinical Problems, that's COPD's home. So it's, it's a good place to be if you're interested in clinical COPD or research. Well, thank you all so much for coming on. The episode was produced, recorded, and edited by myself and Christina Montemayor, and the music was original music made by Eric Rogers.